Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has welcomed the positive outcome on the Northern Ireland Protocol between the EU and the UK, but the UP concerns remain. Tonight we debate proposed new gender recognition laws, and later Greek wildfire survivors Zoe Holohan will be here to tell of her recent journey back to the country which claimed the life of her husband and meeting the firefighter who saved her life. about our nightly live interactive poll, which allows you at home to have your say. Tonight, we're asking, should there be a minimum age for gender transition? You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or follow the QR code that you see on your screen. And we will bring you the poll results a little later in the programme. Well, this evening, as I said, we are going to discuss proposed new gender recognition laws, which would provide a right to self-determination for persons who have reached the age of 16 years without parental consent. However, activists have been accused of brainwashing politicians and HSE management when it comes to the proposed new laws. Well, here in studio now to discuss this further is Jacob Dunnigan, a young man who has shared his transition story online to his 1.2 million TikTok followers. Professor Donal O'Shea, a consultant endocrinologist with the National Gender Service, psychotherapist Dil Vikramasinghe, and Sunday Times columnist Brenda Power. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Professor O'Shea, I'm going to start with you. You might just, I suppose, explain for people at home what we mean when we talk about self-determination. Well, self-determination is where you uh, have decided that you realise you're trans, uh, that you want uh, to have a that recognised legally, uh, and uh, you declare that, uh, f- fill in your gen- gender uh, recognition form, uh, and uh, your uh, sex is then changed to your preferred uh, sex, on, and, and it's official. Okay, and you can do this in this country if you're an adult, if you're over 18 years of age, but also Correct. if you're 16 and 17. But the process to do that has been described as onerous by some politicians, and that's what this legislation aims to change. Yeah, this legislation aims to make it possible for someone aged 16 or 17 to declare uh, their gender uh, without... And I'm more concerned about uh, the support of their parents than the issue of consent. I I, I mean, uh, there's nothing easy about being trans. The journey is uh, personal, it's social, uh, and there is a medical component to it. Um, But if you're taking that first step without support, um, then uh, there's a high chance that there's massive fracture within that family dynamic, massive arguing within that family dynamic, 
high risk of homelessness as a result of that uh, signature and easy access to surgery abroad with that certificate. And, and that's the problem. So, you so that's why you've described this bill or elements of this bill as incredibly dangerous. Uh, th this would represent a serious risk of harm if you allowed 16 and 17-year-olds to uh, self-declare. We we've seen that in our service. And just to be clear, if they were allowed to self-declare, then they're allowed to get a gender recognition certificate yeah. that allows a person to change their birth certificate, for example, their passports. Correct. And, and okay. that certificate is accepted in certain European countries uh, as a, uh, acceptable for gender reassignment surgery. OK, and you've also said, we mentioned the word brainwashing there, and that the HSE have been brainwashed and certain politicians have been brainwashed, um, and that that has happened by transgender activists, those who are, who are dealing with these issues. It's a, it's a pretty strong statement, uh, yeah. Professor. It, it, yeah, it's, what it's, are you basing that on? I'm basing the, it on the fact that senior politicians have told me that, A, they're unable to speak on the issue or they'll be cancelled. Uh, and we have uh, attempted to engage with uh, HSE management at a senior level, but they're just hearing uh, the activist voice. So when we make the point that this uh, is a, a dangerous, harmful uh, measure, uh, the politicians currently are ignoring uh, and senior HSE uh, managers are ignoring. So you're feeling ignored at this point, even though you say you've worked in this area for 25 years and you have expertise you feel they should be listened to? Between our team in Lachlanstown, we have almost 60 years of experience dealing with this area. It's changed a lot in the last 20 years. Uh, we, we need to uh, you know, be cautious with how we move forward and we need to avoid uh, causing harm. And, and we've sat as a team okay. with Hilary Cass, who authored the Tavistock report, um, and she likes the model we use very much. Uh, but again, HSE management are looking to go a different route. OK, Dil, um, uh, Donald O'Shea is saying, you know, we need to uh, be cautious here. We need to ensure we don't cause harm to what are potentially, I suppose, vulnerable 16 and 17-year-olds um, who are looking to self-determine. You disagree with that strongly. Mm, Why? Absolutely. Well, first of all, <clears throat> I'm a psychotherapist. I set up Inside Matters. We, uh, we primarily set up 12 years ago to cater to the mental health of trans, uh, the trans community. Mm. We have over 100 therapists working with us and weekly we have the privilege of supporting 600 clients per week. So there's, there's, so there's a quite a large body of work. I, I really disagree with you, Donald, because there's two issues that are being conflated here. So we are talking about a bill that is hoping to give 16-year-olds the right to self-determine. And that is a very separate issue to actually um, accessing medical treatment. Because a person can actually access medical treatment without self-determining. You know, all they need is to go to a psychiatrist and get the, the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, and then they will then get the, the treatment. So they don't need the certificate. And in relation to this certificate being used to go abroad, that is very unlikely that any surgeon in Europe would entertain a 16-year-old uh, without parental consent and without, in very rare cases, if they have been entertained, they would have to have documentation as long as my arm before they're actually able to access surgery. Okay. So, so I do so think these two clear, issues... Still unlikely, you're saying, yeah. but not impossible. No, I th the, the ones who have gained surgery, I have had to... Because right now, there's 1,200 
patients looking to get uh, uh, the treatment, right? So there's almost a 10-year waiting list. So for these 16-year-olds today who, if they do get this certificate, they will have to wait 10 years before they can get treatment here in Ireland. That's, that's, that's horrendous. Well, what about the point, though, that Donald O'Shea made that 16 and 17-year-olds who are probably still living at home, still under their parental care, mm. that they're far better off if they can do this in a supportive environment with their parents on board, that it leads to fractures within families sure. and the outcomes are much poorer if you allow a 16 or 17-year-old to self-determine and sort of keep the parents out of this. 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds have been uh, transitioning for, for in, from in their gender since 2015. So we're only looking, activists are only looking for this social and legal transition to be made easier. Because in our experience, is if you make that social and legal transition easier for young trans people, okay. a lot of them will actually not mm. e not look for the medical intervention because it becomes about the fight, okay, not about their gender identity. Donald, do you want to respond to that? Uh, well, I, I do know the certs, uh, you know, are used to, to access surgery and you, you don't need uh, much more than the cert in, in certain uh, European centres to, to get the surgery. I, I mean, I know okay. that and I've met people who've, who've um, travelled that road. Uh, so it does but happen. Do, it's a risk. does point she's saying, look, the, the risk of that is minuscule, mm. is what she's saying. Yeah, I don't agree with that. I think, you know, I think it's, I think the risk of uh, serious family fracture, of homelessness, I mean, uh, it, it's, it's a problem within the trans community anyway. That's happening anyway, absolutely. So yeah. we need to try and make the life of this very vulnerable group easier, I, not more difficult. I totally agree with that. Mm. And, and I think access to care is not what it should be. And access to the type of care that they are, is needed is not mm. what it should be. Um, but... I am against anything that will increase the risk uh, of harm. And this legislation will do that. It will increase the risk of harm to... OK, but Dil was saying it won't necessarily increase the risk to harm because those 16 and 17-year-olds can already self-determine in this country if they Without want. the certificate. Without a certificate. They, I mean, for me, the argument is, is not about uh, the legal thing. It, it is about the individual accepting themselves and being accepted uh, as in their preferred gender. And many of the individuals attending us don't really bother with the legal uh, and, and transitioning side of things. They just want so to do you be think, accepted sorry, as who they are. That you're just too young at 16 and 17 to self-determine in general. Uh, I think, uh, no, I think some people will be absolutely clear from a really early age that I'm in, in the wrong body and, and they'll know that. Uh, but when you uh, allow a child legally to transition without the uh, consent and implied in that is the support of their parents. So, I mean, the, the, some of the most positive outcomes I've seen in my career have been uh, young people supported by their family, their school environment, transitioning with support. The disastrous outcomes I've seen, and I have sadly seen a number, is when that support isn't there and when the okay. uh, medical transitioning comes too early in the uh, stage. And as you said, a lot, when they, transi when they transition and are accepted... We'll, we'll stop short of surgery or stop oh, short of... But if you're conflating right. two issues because we're really looking at young people being able to change the name of their passport, the name on their exam papers, because 
you know, right, okay. right now, the, the schools right. are not safe for trans people. Okay. And it's trying to make that let's, easier. Let's go to a young person mm -hmm. here, Jacob, because you're first-hand experience of transitioning. When did you start social transitioning, first of all? I started socially transitioning actually online on the app of Musical.ly before that merged with the app of TikTok in 2016. What and age were you? I was about 16, um, turning 17, and this was before even I came out to my family, they were, but they weren't accepting at this point, so I actually found my group or acceptance with online coming out socially. Now, you then got to 18 years of age, and what happened? You, you medically transitioned at that point? Yeah, so at 17 is when I put into medically transitioning. Um, I had to go to a, psychi a psychiatrist for a year um, to get, obviously, uh, labelled as, or diagnosed, as they say, as um, dysphoric. And that's when you start to medically uh, start your procedure, and that started at 18 after I went through the psycho psychology side of it. OK, to get a diagnosis. Yeah, to get a diagnosis. But at what point, I suppose, in your life did you think, I've been born into the wrong body? That was a very young age, and it's very hard for people to comprehend, but mm -hmm. coming from somebody, as you said, I'm trans, I've, I've lived at first-hand raw. I was, I was only the age of four or five years old when I turned to a magazine. Uh, I was at, at work with my dad. I turned to a magazine. I could barely read it, but all it said was a nine-year-old nine-year-old girl changed to the boy that he was. And I pointed at it. I said, that's me. And my dad, you know, he shrugged it off. He didn't understand what it was, but that was the moment I knew that there was something different. Not that I was transgender because there was no labels as a child, just that I was different. And how difficult was it to, to, to speak to your family, to speak to your school, to speak to friends? Oh, it was, it was hard. Um, growing up in Ireland, anybody part of the LGBT, um, part of Ireland, especially transgender, can understand it's, it's, it's hard. It's not easy. Mm. This is not a choice to be who I am, because if it was a choice, it's a very hard choice at that. Um, it what, was... So what's so difficult? What is so difficult about you're, this? You're not accepted. You're seen as an experiment. If I could, uh, if I could put my um, experience of growing up in Ireland being transgender, I felt like a biology experiment, and people just used me to test their own type of um, con concept of me on me. So asking what's down my pants, what's under my top, mm. people lifting up my top, pulling out my pants. That's, you wouldn't do that to an average person. But because I'm not seen, as soon as somebody labels me transgender, they take away my, my human and they put in an object to just poke and prod at what they feel. And that's, that's gone on for many years and that's gone on from family, friends, teachers. Mm. It's gone on educational. It's, it's gone on from the people you look up to an adult to protect and they were the ones that actually conflicted the most pain in my growing up. OK, in terms of this new bill, you actually more align with Donald on this, don't you? You think there should be some restrictions in place? No, well, at, at, there's two sides to it, because I'm speaking from the side, I know what it's like to be young, I know what it's like to be a teenager, and I know what it's like to be me and other people tell me who, who I actually am to them. I know what that's like. So I can feel all the frustration and anger in these young teenagers that are being told that they're not this, they're not that, you have to wait, it's a phase, da-da-da, all this. They're getting told this since a young age, so I can understand that pressure, they just want to be them. They just want to have that thing on the paper to say, this is who I am, to prove to others, and not just themselves, but to others, that just leave me, leave me alone. Legally, this is who I am, I can understand that. But the other side of it too is... I, my mum, I'm so close with her now. As I said, my family weren't accepting of me as a, at a young age at all. They put me through a lot of hell due to their uneducated side and due to their no understanding towards me um, and not understanding the word transgender. But basically, I understand that she feared that I'm her child and that basically she wants to... She wants to do her job. She wants to mother me. She wants to make sure I'm protected. And this is something that's not taught in schools. It's not yeah. taught anywhere else. Yeah. But, but you're glad now, aren't you, as an adult, that 
that there were some sort of obstacles and barriers put in place and that you couldn't um, self-determine, medically transition until you were 18 years of age. Yeah, you actually that think was... that's a good thing. Well, I wouldn't say a good thing. 16, absolutely 16, is a time to push forward because at 16 you are, you're developed in your own brain. You can't understand anything below that. I can understand that 100%. But above that, you're 16, you can, get, you can get a tattoo. I know that's completely different. But 16, you're, you're asking to put something permanently on your body. A child's figuring that out and, and they're putting that forward to say, yeah, I can do this with the parent's permission. But okay. a gender's completely different. That child's sitting there, has sat there probably from the age of four, from the age of five, and they sat there developing this their whole life, keeping it a secret until they're ready to speak and then they're told no, they're shut down. And that's really hard. It's hard. Brenda, you have written about this extensively mm. in your mm. columns in the Sunday Times. Do you actually believe in gender dysmorphia? Actually, I have to tell you, Kira, I think I was probably the first person in this country to interview a, a transgender person. In 1990, for the Irish press, for the Sunday press, mm. we did a 4,000-word, two-part series on pro probably the bravest woman I've ever met to come out publicly 30-odd years ago. And, and her story was exactly like yours. From the age of four, she said, I was walking to school as a, as a young boy and saw girls coming the opposite direction in a school uniform and thought I should be with them. Okay. What my concern is, and I think most people would agree that, that people either can be or be utterly convinced that they are in the wrong body. There's no difference really between, between the two. I suppose the alarm or the concern most people would have is that this seems to be something that has exploded in the last 10 years with no real explanation for that. Is it because people are, are suddenly feeling more at liberty to express this or is it a form of social contagion? And what do you think My is? concern is we, I, we just don't know enough to know for sure. Is this a disorder like an eating disorder where you hate your body and you want to change it or is it... An, an identity that you should be proud of and should celebrate. I don't know okay. that, here, but I do know that, you know, the, the, the sort of statistics that have come out of the Tavistock over the last while would suggest that caution is the best way to proceed, okay. particularly with younger Dil, people. I want to let you come in here because I see you shaking your head right, I can't believe, Brenda, that you just liken people who are transgender to people who have an eating disorder. Mm. They're very different. Well, I'm just going to say it that Ivana Lynch, different. she made different. that actress, sorry, sorry, Brenda, she sorry. came out and said sorry, she had had an eating disorder and that has made her Brenda, more sympathetic to transgender people because she said, I understand hating yeah, my own body. Yeah, but that's coming out with somebody else's mouth. That's actually not coming from a transgender no, no. person themselves. That's coming but, from a different person adding saying, that label she, in she there. She understands hating your body. Yeah, but that's not, no, that's not the same as an eating disorder to being trans. I am a perfectly fine human. I just have to be labelled medically by doctors to get my medication. Yeah. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me or I have a deficiency. That just means yeah, that I have to be labelled. you need surgery to be who you are. So, so people go for surgeries all the time, though. People go for surgeries mm. for everything. Okay. People go for any type of surgery, BBLs even, but that's not but, but serious. But surgery is, something's wrong. No. No, no, Nothing's no, no, no. Okay, still, let's yeah. still respond no, here. No, Brenda, I, this is the, the, the whole issue about medicalization, you know, the, the diagnosis is, is an issue. Absolutely, is an issue. But unfortunately, this country has created this system uh, at the moment. And I think this, a bill like this, where it'll allow young trans people to self-determine, will actually help us move away from the need for the diagnosis. Because I really do believe more people will be actually quite happy with the self-determining okay, piece. And we'll not want the medication. that that Brandon makes? She doesn't understand how so many more people have come forward and identified as being trans Ke in the last 10 years than ever before. Kira, when I moved to Ireland 23 years ago, Dublin Pride 
was a handful of people, and now Dublin Pride is bigger than St. Patrick's Day. So are you saying to me that, that this, there's a contagion of sexuality? Am I going around recruiting people to no, become lesbians? No, but here's the question. Join the team. No, no it's simply the, the Sorry, fact that the visibility, there's amazing, amazing uh, inspirational role models like Jacob mm. that is speaking okay. out. So these, we are creating a more accepting and inclusive society, which is giving people the courage okay, to come so out. Brandon, okay, so, Brenda, we've just created so, a more accepting, inclusive yeah, society. Fine. That's and and if that here. is the case, then you're saying that the figures for trans identity are, 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 have been solid, have been, have been consistent across generations. If that is the case, I, I where are all that. the women of, of my age, or 30s or 40s or whatever, coming out and saying, yes, I'm trans and I never yes, felt a limited state before? Uh, I'm not no, even, why are they not saying it now? No, but back then, you, it wasn't accepted. If, if you think now. back, 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 people were being killed for just being themselves. No, but that, that, no I understand now. 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 So okay. I'll answer that now. So now you said you don't understand, and that's why a lot of this, you don't understand because you're not going through it, so you can't live it, you can't feel it, you don't understand it, your brain can't comprehend it. OK, just it. the points that, that Brenda made there, why are more people in their 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s not identifying as trans now? if it is socially acceptable. That's the point you're making? This yeah. is the point. If, if okay, this so number if this yeah. represents the, the, the true percentage, if you like, of people who've always been trans, where are they? Where are the older... If you look online, a lot of women, uh, trans women and trans men have come out actually mm. openly online a lot more older, and the reason they have come forward... I do follow a lot of trans people, so I can mm. speak in first-hand here. The reason they come forward and said that they're coming out later on is because it was so stigmatised when they were younger mm. that they were actually in fear... They were in okay. or fear being internalized judged and being torn down. Okay. That's, that's called internalised transphobia. There's uh, so many uh, gay people, l older, who are not coming out because yeah. they're internalised um, homophobia. Yeah. Donal O'Shea, one of the other aspects of sort of this gender recognition bill and indeed the government's attempts to sort of look at this area again is that they're going to review gender recognition for under-16s as well and they haven't made a decision on that yet. Have you any concerns there? Well, I mean, I think uh, the younger you go, uh, the less uh, certain uh, you can be. There will be some individuals who will be absolutely certain from the age of four, uh, and there will be others uh, who uh, won't, and they will uh, kind of encounter a gender question. Um, and individuals really need to be completely allowed to gender question uh, decide are they maybe non-binary rather than uh, a trans man or a trans woman um, and and uh, I think so what is your fear then well I think you will allow an individual to express themselves as they are uh, my concern with uh, the legal uh, change is that it facilitates uh, what is incredibly serious uh, treatment uh, before somebody is maybe ready in, in terms of their stability around their gender uh, identity uh, for, for that next step. OK, Dil? For, for me, uh, speaking for the clients I work with, the clients that come to Inside Matters, very simply, the mental health issues that they bring to the therapeutic space is actually not connected to their gender identity at all. The mental health issues they have is because of how society treats them and because of the lack of healthcare services in Ireland. That is hugely um, distressing to, to even say, because we are letting this vulnerable group down. Because do you think there should be, just to, I'm just thinking of our, our poll question, which we're going to get to in a minute, do you think there need to be sort of any restrictions or limitations in place for those who are under 16 when it comes to either accessing um, healthcare or um, self-determining or 
Um, Self-determining, absolutely, because we're only looking for the, the, the name on the sorry, passport. We need, under we, 16, you should be allowed. Yeah, we, we, okay. we're totally talking about passports and, you know, paperwork in schools, because when you stop someone from being who they want to be, you're arresting their development. You're damaging and eroding their mental health. The, okay. This child is going to be stuck in that place until they're able to be their true identity. Brenda? I just, I just question the extent to which 16-year-olds know exactly who they're going to be for the rest of their lives. Right. Oay, and we're, we're, not, we're not even talking about 16-year-olds. I'm talking about 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds. And 3 and 4-year-olds. 5-year-olds. With, with drugs in the Tavistock, with, 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 with puberty blockers that are drugs that were developed for chemical castration and prostate issues, have been given to 9 and 10-year-olds in the Tavistock Clinic. And I would just say that, that you know, Irish mm -hmm. children were sent there and they're still being sent there. And I would have concerns about yeah, that. And, and I think those concerns should be aired without Donald. people being accused of being transphobic or called names. Okay, Bill is about, about self-determining. I, I, I know that this bill medicine. isn't, but as part of sort of a wider review on um, the sort of gender recognition legislation in this country, they're going to be looking at the under-16s as well. Mm -hmm. Do you have concerns, I think you've actually expressed concerns, about um, the medical treatment of those who are under-16 who are gender-questioning, Donald? Uh, gender questioning, um, you certainly allow them to do gender question and you don't go in with uh, medication. Uh, there will be a, a small number of individuals pre-puberty who probably will uh, require treatment if you're to actively manage them and if they, the other mental health issues that you know are f generated because of their gender, not by their gender identity. Mm. So I think, yeah. But, and, 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 you know, so I think we absolutely need... Everybody's journey is different. Everybody's mm -hmm. gender, uh, rec when they recognise their gender incongruity, will happen at a different stage in their development and should be managed differently okay. uh, and individually. We absolutely need better access to okay. assessment uh, can and I just say, yeah. Is there not a high percentage, I think 33%, 35% in the Tavistock, of, of transgender children who were found to be autistic. Now, that's not a result of transphobia. No. You know, it, you can't attribute that to, to, to their being exposed to transphobia. Okay. I think 25% were found to have okay. been sexually abused. Do you know so what, what I mean? 40% depressed. Point you're here. There, were other, there were other mental health issues that were not necessarily resulting. Autism have the right for bodily autonomy as well. Uh, of course. Okay. But I mean, do you not think that that, given the fact that 2% of the, the wider population is, is autistic, 35% of those gender questioning, that there might be a connection to be explored there. No, okay, I, Dill, I want to give Dill the final word yeah, on Yeah, no, there is absolutely a, 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 a link between being trans and, and being neurodivergent. There's plenty of research, but again, someone who's autistic, someone who, who is on the, on the spectrum, has the right for bodily autonomy. Has and the same really, entitlements as everybody else. And, and, and sorry, the conversation yeah. really needs to be about why is there a 10-year waiting yeah. for members of and the trans actually, community to get yeah, treatment Jacob, in Ireland. Just to give that last word to you, does it, it disappoint you, frustrate you sometimes that this is the conversation we're having around um, It is, as I said, 100% trans people, they feel like a biology project, like an experiment. You can poke and prod and say what you like because it, there's, there's nothing to stop you from saying it. And I can understand 100% everything. I respect everybody's words tonight. But when it comes to transgender and people speaking on transgender people when they haven't transitioned, you may have stats, you may have knowledge, mm. but you have not lived it so it's not firsthand in your brains you haven't lived the emotion you haven't felt it so it's very hard to talk on statistics when I've lived it personally you know
Oh, here, here, look, at, we're going to have to um, leave it there. Um, well, actually, I'm just going to bring you very quickly the result of our nightly poll. We asked people, should there be a minimum age for gender, gender transition? It's 95% of people said yes and 5% said no. Um, we will return to this um, at some later stage of the programme. Just to let you know, you can contact Helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. My thanks to the panel for joining me this evening. After the break, the Taoiseach welcomes positive outcome in protocol talks but DUP concerns remain. We'll bring you the very latest. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome back. Well, it's goodbye, Northern Ireland Protocol. Hello, Windsor Framework. That's the name UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is giving to his agreement with the EU to try and sort the most complicated part of Brexit, Northern Ireland. His plans have been welcomed in Brussels, in Dublin and most of London, but now it has to receive support from those who opposed it the most. That's members of Sunak's own party and Northern Ireland unionists. Well, I'm joined in studio by Minister of State Thomas Byrne and on Skype by Darren McCaffrey, political editor of GB News and by Alison Morris, columnist and crime correspondent for the Belfast Telegraph. You are very welcome. I'm going to go to you first, Darren. So, what is the mood music like in Westminster this evening? Has Rishi Sunak done it? Has he sealed the deal here? Well, Darling Street would certainly like us to feel that he has. First of all, I was in that room in the press conference in Windsor earlier on uh, today, and I've been to a hell of a lot of Brexit press conferences over the years. Certainly the personal relationship between Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen it is not like what we've seen in the past. They clearly have quite a good relationship. In many ways, I would suggest they're quite similar people, actually, quite serious politicians uh, who are kind of technocrats, if you like, to a large uh, degree. So that relationship is clearly good. In fact, these negotiations don't seem to be that tricky. The tricky bit, as you've suggested, is how is this going to play out? Is this deal going to fly, most notably, with Conservative backbenchers and the DUP? And the mood in Westminster for the government is pretty good, Tonight, we've had everyone from Theresa May to David Davis and others suggest that the Prime Minister has done very well here. Even a recognition from the DUP uh, that significant progress has been made. However, there are still a lot of the ERGs, the, the sceptics, the Eurosceptics, if you like, the hardliners, who are still saying, hold on a second here. We really need to look at the detail on all of this. And others saying that, you know what, if the DUP do not like this, we're not going 
to back it. Now, this deal will go through Parliament because we know Labour and the SNP have already said they will vote for it. So Rishi Sunak doesn't need to worry about the numbers in that sense. However, it would be politically catastrophic for him if he had to rely on the opposition parties to get this through. But as I say, he's on his way to Belfast tonight. He's going to meet lots of the political leaders here in Northern Ireland tomorrow. That will clearly be quite crucial, not least of all that conversation with the DUP. But at the moment, okay. Downing Street seems quietly confident but he does that this will work. But have another thorn in his side in the name of Boris Johnson. Has he been seen? Has he been heard? What's his take, I wonder? Yeah, the cameras cut up with a little earlier on today, but he would not engage in a conversation. Two things. First of all, be in no doubt, he is talking to politicians behind the scene. We believe he's had conversations with the DUP today. Uh, Politics Home reporting that he's been telling the DUP to be cautious about this deal, not to come out and support it. Be in no other doubt here, Boris Johnson wants to be Prime Minister again. And there is no doubt that he will undermine Rishi Sunak if he thinks it will be politically expedient for him. And will he exploit this potentially? Oh, of course he will, if if he thinks there's a political opportunity. And that's why we're seeing this proper tussle now between the prime minister, who's put an awful lot of legwork in over the last week or so, speaking to dozens of MPs throughout the day, briefing them privately, uh, trying to ensure uh, they're on side. But as we've seen in the past, Brexit has dragged down quite a few politicians in the UK. And if this goes wrong for Rishi Sunak, it will go very wrong. If it goes well, though, this really could not just be a turning point, as he called it today, between the EU and the UK, but a turning point for his premiership, too. OK, Alison Morris, you're in Belfast this evening, reading the mood music there. All eyes on the DUP. We've heard John, Jeffrey Jones say he can see there's been significant changes, but he needs to go away and, and consider it. What do you feel? You've been covering this for a long time. Will the DUP support it? Yeah, I feel like I've been covering Brexit from the day dot. It's been going on for so long. The DUP, it's my understanding that they're very pleased with some aspects of it and they're unsure about others. So the Stormont break, that sort of veto that they will have over any new EU law that's introduced, that I think is something that they're very pleased about. It's something that they can work on. But what isn't clear is how it's going to restore the Acts of Union, which was one of their red lines. And the, the text itself is quite ambiguous. A lot of that now has to be done in domestic law. So the, the negotiation, as far as they're concerned, isn't over. While the EU-UK negotiation part of it, that is that done. The Windsor framework is the deal. Now they have to talk to the Prime Minister to look and see how they're going to get the other aspects of the, the protocol that they were upset with put into domestic law to try and make sure then that they have their sort of the sovereignty, the constitutional part of it, the trading part of it, you know, the red lane, the green lane, all of that, they're completely happy with. I think that that is more probably than they expected to get. But it's the other parts of it that I think that they believe that there's still a little bit of negotiation to go. They're not there yet, but they're not ruling it out completely. We did hear Ian Paisley Jr. ruling it out, but he's you know known as a, a politician who goes off on solo runs. And they were they were stung by Boris Johnson in the past. He told them there'd be no sea border. He told them to their face there'd be no sea border, and then there was. So they'll want to go through every line, every word, you know, make sure that there's no no room, no wriggle room for the, the British government to go back and for them to end up in the same position again. They have to be able to sell this to their voters. All right, Darren McCaffrey and uh, Alison Morris, thank you both for joining us. Thomas Byrne, what changed? Well, I think the biggest change actually is the personal relationship between Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen and Maris Sefcovic and other British interlocutors. 
quite frankly, I think you can work with anything if the people get on well themselves and you know that you have a trusted partner. I mean, the problem with dealing with the UK up to now was we didn't know... We literally didn't know that if they agreed something today, would they stick to it tomorrow? So I think now... Well, that, that wasn't just Boris Johnson you're talking about. That was the wider negotiation. Yeah, well, and there was, whole, there was all sorts of changes throughout the House of Commons, throughout the process as well. But, I mean, particularly on a number of occasions, we saw a threat and to break international law. I mean, it's totally unacceptable. Um, but it really made it really difficult for the EU to agree anything with Britain. So that's completely changed now. And it's not just good for the north of Ireland, but it's really good for Britain too, because they now will have stability in their relationships with the EU, which will help... Their economy, I think. I actually think it'll help the Tories in the polls as well, because I think if the DUP are going to wait for something better, you're looking at the, probably the biggest Labour Party landslide ever if you look at the polls today in Britain. So I think that they will look at that very, very carefully and maybe the bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. OK, do you think this will be enough to get the DUP back into power-sharing, back into Stormont? Well, I certainly hope that it is. I mean, that's a separate process. But I think what's happened is that the European Commission... The British government and indeed the Irish government have listened to genuine concerns that people in Northern Ireland had, uh, particularly members of the unionist, unionist community. So, so issues about parcels are now practically gone. The issue of the, the British sausage that wasn't able to go to Northern Ireland is now not an issue anymore. And these sort of the issue of EU law, though, still is an issue, isn't it? That is a compromise. It's a, look. It's what, what, what we have now here, and we've talked about it loads of times before, is the best of both worlds, and you literally have it now. So they've absolute full access to the British market. The British market now is full access to Northern Ireland as well now. That's really the change now with this. And Northern Ireland is full access to the EU market. And it doesn't threaten anybody's identity. Uh, all these issues that were raised have now been comprehensively addressed because if there are difficulties in the future, we now know there's a British government there that you can work with to resolve those difficulties within the framework of the agreement. So, if you were to call this, will the DUP support this or not? Well, I certainly hope so. And I'm certainly very happy to give them time to think about it and to reflect on it and to look at the detail of it. That's very, very important. But they're not going to get a better uh, deal than this. They are not going to get I that. mean, they did talk about, you know, requiring potential, you know, clarifications. I don't think anybody would deny them that. But the potential for further changes. Do you think there is potential or is this it? I'd say this is the deal, um, but what I, what I would also say is that if this they deal... They feel like they've heard that a few times. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is the fi full and final offer. And then Look, and, and just to be absolutely clear, the protocol is still there. What's happened here is that changes have been made within the framework of the protocol, and that's uh, allowed under provision of the protocol or the withdrawal agreement that this can happen within four years. But there's also joint committees there between uh, Britain and the EU where all sorts of difficulties can be dealt with, and now properly because the two sides get along, the two sides can trust each other, and that's really, really important. But there, there's, there's simply not going to be a better deal than this. And the alternative is what we didn't want all along. And why does it here? This? I suppose what is the alternative? If they, the, alternative if they is don't hard, the alternative is something that's un unthinkable, which is a hard border on the but, island of Ireland, which nobody, everybody has said they don't want. No, but what happens if the DUP don't support this, but Rishi Sunak pushes this through? I think life will move on in Northern Ireland very, very quickly. People will see this is reasonable, this is working, this is what we ask for, this is what businesses, is what people ask for. Yeah. And people simply wouldn't understand why a party wouldn't go along with it. OK, Aliyah Radker said, I think it was last summer, was it last June, that relations with the UK were as bad as they had ever been. Has, has that changed? Well, has that shifted? Well, we've the third Prime Minister since last June. So with Liz Truss, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, now Rishi Sunak, that's obviously changed dramatically. And that's really, really good for the British economy. It's really good for the Irish economy as well, because we need to have good relations with Britain. And it's really good for the peace process, which is of paramount importance. So I think when you have the two sides working together closely, anything is possible. This is what happened, I often say it in the 90s, in the, in the Good Friday Agreement, that relationship between Tony Blair and Bertie Hearn and the party leaders 
was absolutely crucial. The fact that they were on the phone to each other talking about their families or their holidays or whatever, it's really, really important, those personal connections. Okay. So that's happening now uh, with the British government and I'm really, really excited about it. And it's an opportunity for Northern Ireland. I think every party should grasp it. All right. Uh, Thomas Byrne, thank you for coming in to us uh, this evening. Right after the break, Zoe Holohan will be here to tell us about her recent journey back to Greece. You're very welcome back. Well, in July 2018, four days after her wedding, Zoe Hullohan tragically lost her husband, Brian O'Callaghan Westrop, in a horrific wildfire while they were on their honeymoon in Greece. Four years later, and Zoe recently made the painful journey back to Greece to give evidence in the court case against officials charged over the devastating blaze, which took the lives of 102 people and resulted in hundreds of of injuries. Zoe, you are very welcome to the programme. Thank you. The last four years, I can't begin to imagine how traumatic they have been for you. Yeah, it's been quite a process. It's actually five years this year now that the fifth anniversary will come up on July 23rd. So, um, yes, it's taken a long, long time to get to this stage now and uh, a lot of therapy <laughs> and a lot of healing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was it was quite quite a good process to go back to Greece and I was only back there just a month ago for this court case so I found that that was an important part of the jigsaw that I really needed to uh, I needed to be there to tell my story. So for people who mightn't be familiar what is your story briefly? Um, well on the 23rd of July 2018 I was caught up in the Greek wildfires that ravaged a beautiful little town called Mati actually on the coast of Athens. I was on honeymoon there with my husband Brian at the time and uh, we were only married four days. And uh, tragically, Brian was killed in the fires. And I was very, very severely burned myself. I was burned from head to toe, effectively. And uh, was very lucky to have survived myself. I was rescued from the boot of a burning car. Um, and uh, yeah, therein started a long process of a lot of surgeries. I contracted sepsis. Thereafter, so I spent quite a long time in a coma back in Ireland. And uh, yeah, it's been, as I said, a long duration of recovery and a lot of surgeries, etc. since then. And the recovery has obviously been physical, mental and emotional for you. Absolutely, absolutely. Every single part of that. Um, I've been very lucky. I've been blessed. I've had phenomenal care through St. James's Hospital. So uh, not only from the, the physical aspects, but yes, absolutely, the, 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 the mental health aspects. And um, I've had uh, been working with a, a great therapist there for a good three years. So I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for all of those. I say, I, I, I call it putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. So they all, they all played their part in there. So do you feel back together again now? I feel a little bit more like the old me, but obviously my life is, is forever changed, you know, and so I would be dealing with, I guess you could call them life-altering injuries. Um, but I'm, I'm very much kind of looking forward as opposed to being locked in the past now, or at least I'm trying to do so on the good days. Um, I wrote a, a book about the whole experience, um, a memoir called As the Smoke Clears, and that was a very cathartic process. And that kind of started me on a different journey and thereafter. So I, I continued to write. I write for the, a column in the Indo, uh, a diary on, on how um, my life is proceeding. Because um, I did see you speak. Um, because I know you do inspirational yes. um, speeches as well. And I yeah. saw you speak at an event I was hosting. And one thing that really, really stayed with me was that you spoke about sort of the mental turmoil 
in the weeks and the months after this horrific event, uh, where you kept asking yourself, what if? Mm. What if we hadn't gone to Greece? What if we had gone to a different island? Mm. What if we had decided to get up earlier that day? Mm. That it was the what ifs, what ifs. That, that, that they were really, really traumatic and damaging. And, and haunting, and absolutely haunting. haunting. And I mean, that was definitively part of the, the PTSD that I was suffering from. But I, I, I can tell you, anybody that's ever survived a major traumatic event will tell you that, you know, that uh, survivor's guilt is a major, major part um, of that condition. So it took an, an awfully long time for me to be able to overcome those. And particularly, you know, I, I, I felt I carried a lot of blame. Greece was my choice of, of honeymoon, you know, and there were certain other factors. Now, clearly it wasn't my fault and it was just a horrible twist of fate that we, we happened to be there. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was a major thing I had to overcome. And um, what you did recently was you had to return to Greece mm. um, to give evidence in the trial. This was something you really felt nervous about, but something that you really felt you needed and wanted to do. Why? Oh, it was, it, it, it was crucial. I mean, it, effectively, it was for Brian. I was... I am his voice. You know, he's no longer here to tell his side of the story. And um, I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm not the only victim of that day. You know, 102 people died in those fires, but many more people passed away thereafter. And, and also there are thousands of people who, like me, were affected by severe burns and injuries. And I found it was a really essential part of, of this journey or a piece of the jigsaw um, to be able to have the opportunity to tell exactly what happened to us that day. Because as you can imagine, sometimes the truth doesn't necessarily come out. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it felt very empowering actually to, to be able to, now also bloody terrifying. I mean, you're, you're, you're sitting in a courtroom with 11 judges and dozens of lawyers firing questions at you over a three hour period. So that's not an easy thing by any means. But nonetheless, when I came away from it, I felt like I had uh, not only done myself justice, but also Brian too. And, and that was very, very important to me. And I got to meet a lot of people that were similar, you know, similarly, they were victims of that day. And had they all had similar experience, a similar journey to you? Did you actually have that commonality? Yeah, I mean, it, it really felt like, it's a strange thing to admit to, I felt like I belonged with these people because... Everybody's experience is different, obviously, and there is a huge amount of loss and trauma, and that will, um, that will, people will react in a different way to dealing with those those matters. But um, there was an awful lot of love and support in that room, and only these people understand how I feel. Mm. And I, I, I suppose, to a degree, I've been searching for that community here in Ireland since I came back. Um, in sort of the, the late autumn 2018, and I hadn't quite been able to find that community. So going back there, I found I've, I've I know it sounds a bit no, schmancy, not at but all. I've met you didn't have to explain no, yourself what no. you saw, what happened, how you felt, what your loss was. No, and, and I was just smothered by hugs and kisses as soon as as I, I finished my testimony. And really, the, that meant an awful lot to me because um, there. There were only six people who weren't from Greece who, were, who died on that particular day. Um, Brian, tragically, was one of those. And as far as I'm aware, I'm the only person outside Greece who gave testimony in this court case, live testimony. So um, 
I, I wasn't sure how I would be accepted amongst that group, if you know what I mean, once I arrived there. But no, I, I, I got a huge amount of love and support. And, it, it and really one other me. thing that happened that day when you get to give your testimony is the mm. firefighter yes. who saved your life yeah, yeah. was there. Incredible, incredible. In fact, Tell me about that reunion. Well, Manus Saliagos is his name. And in fact, uh, it took me a long time when I was in hospital initially in, in the Matera in Athens. I wasn't aware that he actually wasn't an official firefighter. He was actually a civil volunteer. So this man risked his life. He went in through these walls of flames to save people. He, I'm not the only person he saved that day. But um, he actually discovered me uh, shortly after Brian had passed away. And uh, we had attempted an escape in, in the boot of this car. And he found me there and he actually initially assumed I was dead. But apparently my eye, the one eye that was still working, uh, flickered. And he lifted me from the car and carried me to safety. And you were able to say thanks. And you have no idea how powerful that moment was. I mean, I'm going to try not well up here, but just to see him again was... Uh, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to put into words. How do you thank somebody who saved your life? You know, it's, so it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful moment. All right. Yeah. We have to leave it there, but so we all okay. really appreciate you coming and sharing your story with us Thank uh, you. this evening. Well, that is it from us. Uh, we'll be back here tomorrow night at 10 o'clock. But from all the tonight's team, good night. You do. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.